This man makes it his job to study these things. The Outline World Dispatch. Wednesday, June 21st, 2017. I'm Kalila Juice. Today on The Dispatch, Zoe Beery on a polo shirt. I asked him about why he chooses to tell his followers to wear Fred Perry, even though it's so closely associated with Nazi skinheads. And Anne Derek Gayo on reality TV therapy. For many viewers, these shows are the only example of what therapy looks like. Here's the dispatch. Culture. For the last two years, members of the Proud Boys cult of masculinity have worn Fred Perry branded polo shirts as they shout at anti-fascist protesters and take rocks to the head. In blog posts and tweets dating back to 2014, their patriarch, Gavin McInnes, has instructed them that a Fred Perry tennis shirt, always in black and yellow, is the proper armor for battling multiculturalism. Zoe Beery wrote about the history of this shirt for The Outline. Hi, Zoe. Hey, Kalila. How's it going? Uh, Considering that Gavin McInnes just called me a stupid bitch on Twitter pretty well. Ooh, okay, wow. So we really need to get into this story. Yeah, Um, I'm excited. Can you start by telling us who the Proud Boys are? Yeah, so um, like I said in the article, the Proud Boys are a group of almost entirely men that started in New York City, led by Gavin McInnes, who was previously one of the uh, co-founders of Vice. Um, He hasn't been with the company for a long time since it kind of went legit. They bought him out because he was a liability, which he proved very well when he started organizing these men together. Um, And what they call themselves is a pro-West fraternal organization. And what that looks like is a bunch of guys getting together at bars to drink and complain about Muslims and women and the influx of non-white immigrants into the U.S., Um, they have a like really bizarre initiate. Well, it's actually not that bizarre. They have this initiation ritual of like getting drunk together and then beating their new member up. And then the guy has to get a tattoo. And then it's also highly suggested that he also purchase a black and yellow Fred Perry shirt to wear to protests and just around life as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay. So let's back up a little bit. Who is Fred Perry? Fred Perry um, was a champion English tennis player, um, and after I think after he retired in the early 50s, he came out with a sportswear brand. Um, it started off as just sweatbands, but then quickly he introduced a tennis shirt, which at the time was just white cotton peak, uh, and it was intended for wear on the tennis court, but quickly became like general sort of English day wear leisure sort of shirt to wear on and off the court. Okay. And so when did it start to be associated with white supremacy then? Um, In the early 1960s, there was a subculture that began to emerge in working class council estates, which is public housing in the UK. It was Jamaican immigrants and their children who hung out with white kids who had lived there for a long time. The English kids loved the Jamaican style, which was rude boy style. Um, And the English kids wanted to sort of create their own answer to it. And what they did was they pulled from these hallmarks of English design. And one of those things was Fred Perry being uh, not only an English heritage brand, but also bearing the name of a man who himself came from a working class background. And so they were it for a long time, but starting in the late 1960s, 
the British National Front, which was a white nationalist party, saw these young working class people, most of whom were white, who were wearing this look and began to radicalize them based on racial animosity instead of class status. And because the Fred Perry shirt was already part of the subculture as it became radicalized, the shirt came with it. Um, And it just continued on from there through the 1970s as skinhead, which is what the press starting in the late 60s termed the hard mod working class look spread outside of London where the look started to northern areas that were far whiter and far more xenophobic and then eventually also into the US as skinhead culture progressed there starting in the uh, early 1980s. And so what does Gavin McGinnis have to say about all this? What Gavin McGinnis has to say generally um, is that the skinhead look originated in working class London and didn't start off as being exclusively white supremacist, which is completely true. And I totally agree with him about it. What he said to me specifically when we emailed was that the media has a ridiculous obsession and just wants to paint his group as neo-Nazis at any chance that they get. And eventually when we were emailing, he got so fed up that um, he he felt that I was looking for like an angle and uh, what, what he said, he said this thing that the media has quote unquote Nazi glasses, which he spelled N O T space S E E as in, we do not <laughs> see anything but Nazis. So he hmm. simultaneously acknowledges the origins of skinhead and acknowledges that it has become associated with white supremacy while also asking onlookers to distance his group from those origins simply because he wants them to. Um, so let's go back to that tweet for a second. Um, what did Gavin, what has Gavin said to you? So that tweet is the only thing that he said to me after the article was published, although I have to admit that I haven't checked the email address that I set up just to communicate with him about this interview. Um, but we had an email conversation during which he said a number of interesting things to me. Uh, First of all, he told me that we had to communicate via email because he doesn't trust the liberal media to do in-person or phone interviews with him. When I asked him about why he chooses to tell his followers to wear Fred Perry, even though it's so closely associated with Nazi skinheads and he does not want to be associated with white supremacists, He didn't respond to me directly, but he has a video um, TV series on this neoconservative network called The Rebel, I think. And I think a day after I emailed him asking, why would you want your followers to wear this if you don't want people to think that they're Nazis, he published a new episode of his TV show where for 15 minutes, he pounds the point literally and figuratively by pounding the desk that he's sitting behind that the media just wants to call his followers Nazis. The solution is if someone wants to interview you from a mainstream source and they're liberal, I say, don't do it. You're a Nazi, no matter how you slice it. And then when they call you a Nazi, you sue them and demand a retraction. Don't waste your time talking to these people. The article's already written up here. These are, I see them all as Rezzo Rizzo. They're just like slimy New York hustlers. So he releases that video where he complains about all of these, you know, fake 
news liberal journalists maligning his group unfairly. And he goes, you never denounced bigotry, though. I go, I didn't denounce lacrosse either. It's not part of my life. The only time I bring it up is when you won't shut up about it. So I'm sorry I don't self-flagellate about slavery every day. I don't feel bad about it. I like being Western. But then he emailed me again saying, you know, I was in a really good mood this week and I'm just so tired of you people, you know, looking for an angle for your story and you're not listening to me and I'm really fed up with it. I didn't respond to him. And then a couple hours later, he just sent me an email that said, you know what? I'm done with the media. I'm done with you people interviewing me. You're the last one. Wow. So we'll see if he keeps his word. (laughs) We will. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Zoe, for getting into it with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Culture. Back in May, New York rapper Young M.A. sat down for what may have been her first psychotherapy session. Well, I hear you are excited as hell to be here today. (laughs) That's her therapist, Dr. Siri Satnam Singh. Therapy, I know that just just excites you, huh? I sip some champagne. Well, <laughs> live your life. The session could have been powerful for M.A., but at the end, she and Singh said their goodbyes as if they didn't plan to see each other again anytime soon. Well, you're truly blessed and you're blessing others, and it was my blessed experience to be here with you today. And vice versa. M.A. had just bared her soul for a 22-minute episode of Viceland's The Therapist, one stop on the promo run for her debut album, Her Story. Effective therapy requires both parties' commitment to consistent meetings over a period of time. But The Therapist is a TV show. And so, the next episode would need another performer with a new set of traumas to expose and a new project needing promotion. Reality shows always straddle the line between entertainment and exploitation. But with its combination of medical expertise and vulnerable famous patients, the reality TV therapy show genre is one of the most cringeworthy. For many viewers, these shows are the only example of what therapy looks like. Unfortunately, their depictions couldn't be more misleading. Without a doubt, Dr. Drew Pinsky is responsible for the advent of reality TV therapy. After years spent working as a medical professional in and out of the entertainment industry, Pinsky became the star of his own addiction therapy show, Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, in 2008. Go to the hospital in here, you've disrupted the group a number of times with loud antics, you smuggled (laughs) drugs into the place. The show was a huge hit, spawning two spinoffs and running for six seasons on VH1. If you thought the treating celebrities was tough, wait till you see what happens with these patients. But many people critical of the show voiced concerns that it was a potentially harmful enterprise. Pinsky's involvement with Celebrity Rehab as both a clinical therapist and an executive producer seemed obviously problematic. But the murky ethicalities weren't what eventually caused Pinsky to end the show in 2012. No, it was that he was, quote, tired of taking all the heat each time a former cast member died. Mindy McCready, the country music star dead after an apparent suicide, and the 37-year-old was the fifth participant from the reality TV series Celebrity Rehab to die, and the third from her season alone. So did her very public attempt at recovery actually hurt her chances to get better? 
Nine years after it first aired, five people who appeared on Celebrity Rehab have died of causes related to addiction or mental illness. The practice of parading vulnerable patients and licensed medical professionals in front of dubious television therapy projects continues on. We have shows like Couples Therapy and Family Therapy, Marriage Boot Camp Reality Stars and Marriage Boot Camp Reality Stars Family Edition, and Viceland's The Therapist. It's hard for you to love right now. This anger, this shame, are you just going to carry it? Let's go there. There are plenty of red flags on these shows that call into question just how much the participants know about what they're getting into. Take, for example, the 2016 Viceland special, YG and the Therapist. It documented two therapy sessions between Dr. Singh and rapper YG. So you're a real therapist, right? Real. The biggest moment is when YG shows up for his second session, heavily inebriated. Can you talk about your process? I'll hear beats and I'll just start rapping and I'm talking about shit and I've just been through shit I didn't, uh, uh, shit I have seen, shit that's going on. After confirming that YG is indeed drunk, Singh decides to go ahead with the filmed session anyway. According to Dr. Lynn Bufka, Associate Executive Director for Practice Research and Policy at the American Psychological Association, there is no hard and fast rule on whether or not a therapist can or should continue a session with a patient who is inebriated. But from a layperson's perspective, knowing YG was drunk and only meeting Singh for the second time, whether or not he could have reasonably consented to be filmed during that session seems to occupy a gray area. Bufka told me that the onus is ultimately on the medical professional to determine what's in the best interest of their patient. Um, that's sort of the first thing that we always think about in these kinds of situations is, will it be a benefit to the individual receiving care? And, and I don't want to ask them to do something or engage in something um, where they feel like they have no choice but to say yes because I'm their, their doctor. Um, so you're very, very, very careful about talking with individuals about that kind of situation. Luckily, large numbers of people are watching these shows and can alert authorities if anything seems suspect. Unluckily, many of them may not have a good idea of what therapy is supposed to look like in the first place. When something is on national television, the assumption is that if anything were wrong, the show wouldn't air. Having a licensed medical professional or two on a show signals that there are professionals working behind the scenes to make sure no harm will come to anyone involved. No matter how distressed the stars of these shows may appear, audiences have to either trust that the patients they're watching are going to be okay, or simply not care. And unless awful things happen to them, as they did to at least five people from Celebrity Rehab, reality TV therapy shows will continue to be a feature of American television. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Kalila Dews. More stories tomorrow.